Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining me today. We have got a great show. We've got Bob Wheeler. He's a financial expert, a motivator, a book author, and founder of The Money Nerve. That We'll have to learn more about that. Bob's a man of true integrity. He's got infectious energy, and he has a crusade for personal growth that has cross-pollinated with his accounting practice, and he's created a new approach to personal finances. His passion is to help others gain insights about how their emotions trigger financial decisions. Combining finances with behavior, Bob explores his personal concept of creating a healthy relationship with money in his book, The Money Nerve. Navigating the Emotions of Money, his online course, Mastering the Emotions of Money, and his podcast, Money You Should Ask. So while he's doing all that, he's also pursued his love of satire and ventured into the realm of stand-up comedy. He's currently the CFO for the world-famous Comedy Store, a man of many talents. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, Lee, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you talk about the emotional aspect of the relationship with money, and so many people don't even think they have a relationship with money. They think money and the word relationship, that they're not even in the same galaxy. But I, there is a relationship because we have relationships with everything. I have a relationship with a, a chair around my kitchen table. I must sit in that chair. Don't you even think about it. That's right. (laughs) But, you know, most people don't recognize that they do have a relationship with money because it's an unhealthy relationship with money. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think when it's an unconscious relationship, it's definitely um, it's definitely unhealthy because we're not making intentional choices and mostly we're not aware. And many of us don't want to be aware I mean, I have friends that won't even look at a credit card statement. It's on auto pay. Yeah. Don't you want to know where you're spending your money? I mean, yeah. all mine's on auto pay too, but but I look at every single one of them. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think because people get overwhelmed so easy, um, they feel like they didn't get the financial download. A lot of people would just rather put their head in the sand, play ostrich, and hope for the best. But so if, if you're doing that, if if you really think that you're going to stick your head in this in the sand and you're going to create abundance how in the world does that work yeah you know i think a lot of people just like winning the lottery ticket they're just hoping they're going to get lucky and it's just so much better when you're not waiting for your ship to come in but you build your own ship and go out and sail it <laughs> like just you have to be proactive so do you think that people should expect to make money? I mean, lots of money? Well, you know, I don't think you have to make lots of money to have an amazing life. Uh, You can have an abundant, amazing life without making tons and tons of money. I've been to other places in the world, uh, specifically parts of Africa and, and places where people don't make a whole lot of money and they are incredibly happy, incredibly grateful, and they feel incredibly abundant. And that's really what's key is that feeling of abundance because all of our needs are met, Mm -hmm. we're taken care of, 
we have what's what's most important to us. And you're right. It's not about always about a whole, whole lot of money. It's it's not. And, you know, I think one of the things and it's it's a first world problem over here is that uh, we have enough money to isolate from other people. We have enough money to sort of do what we want. And so then it becomes sort of an entitlement. You know, I want four choices for my telephone service and I want lots of choices and I demand it. And we we're always looking often we're looking at what other people have and saying, well, why don't I have that? Instead of stopping and looking and saying, wow, I have a roof over my head. I got a car that runs. I'm eating. Um, wow, I'm really grateful. And, and so I think we get caught up in what we don't have instead of focusing on what we do have. We know there's a social psychologist, Paul Piff, and he has looked at the connection on how money affects the mind. And what his research has seen is that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. Yeah. And their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and those go up. Their self-interest yeah. continues to increase. Yeah, and I think that's because there's such a disconnect. The more we can push other people out, the more we don't relate to them. So the, the less empathy we have when people around us are saying, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. We're like, hey, it's your fault. I, I did my part, and so I'm protected. I mean, it's amazing to me because, you know, my mom was a teacher and you'll hear people say, well, you don't become a teacher for the money. Um, and, and that's true. But we put some we try to rationalize what yeah. our approach to money is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's so interesting when I do workshops, um, I'll ask people like who wants more money? And everybody's like, I do. I do. And who wants to be rich? Me, me, me. Uh, what do you think of rich people? Oh, rich people suck. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like they're greedy. So we're in this bind already because we're wanting to be something that we dislike or that we've been programmed to dislike. And yet we define success as being financially successful. So let me ask you a question. People that grew up where and in, in homes where money was something that was argued over. Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Yeah. How does that impact their relationship with money? Yeah. So, you know, that's a big one. And um, what it does is it starts to tell people at a young age, don't bring up the money conversation because it's going to mean a fight. Somebody's going to leave. Somebody's going to get angry. Somebody's going to get punished. And, and so uh, we avoid these conversations because most people think when I say, let's have a money conversation, they think I'm saying, let's have a money argument. And until we can normalize these conversations that, yes, may sometimes get heated, um, but having family meetings and talking about the budget and, and just normalizing the fact that we have to make financial choices every day, all the time, minute to minute, and, and to make it not such an emotional uh, uh, you know, explosion. Well, so do you think everybody has a money story? I do. I do. You know, it's interesting. I've worked with people. Uh, I was working with somebody who their grandparents invented some ice cream snack that, you know, makes millions and millions and millions of dollars. But the grandparents grew up during the depression. So they were always like, Oh my God, we're going to be thrown out of our house and all these things. And so my, um, this person, um, grew up thinking that they were in absolute poverty, even though they had a chauffeur driving them to school they were going to <laughs> because they didn't have any other benchmark. They didn't have any other, uh, marker to say, Oh, this is what 
extremely poor people look like. So it wasn't until later that he found out and he was like, oh my gosh, I was going around thinking we were on the verge of starvation and bankruptcy and we were living an incredibly good life. And so it doesn't matter how many dollars there are um, behind the one, uh, we create these stories from a young age that end up not being the truth, but we take on as truth. Well, and I think, you know, one thing that we're all reluctant to do is to stop and evaluate why mm -hmm. we take, you know, why don't you save? I have I have a client right now that's saying, you know, I cannot save money. I get a stimulus check. And what do I do? I go spend it. Why can't I save? Yeah. Well, you know, when I hear people like that um, and I hear that often, uh, you know, I take it from an accounting point of view and I say, what's the cost? Um, what's the cost benefit? Right. What is it costing you not to save? Um, is it costing you your future? Um, is it is it, and what's the benefit? I get to feel good in the moment. Um, I get to reaffirm that I'm right, that I don't have the ability to save because we love to be right. Often we love to be more right than we like to actually have a good experience. <laughs> and and so we have to start to look at that. Why don't I want to save? Why am I sabotaging? What's my belief system? And then trace it back to childhood to start to see where did these where did these stories come up? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I think of my, my money story, it's when I was a kid, I played Monopoly. Yeah. And the people that, I mean, we all wanted to win, but some more than others. Yeah. And the people that were, that would cheat, you know, a little and like, eh, I don't want to play with you. Right. Um, but it, it, it uh, it's, a, it's a story. And it was interesting because I saw a study, a UC Berkeley study, and they had more than 100 pairs of strangers play Monopoly. Mm -hmm. And a Cohen flip randomly assigned one person in each pair. You get to be the rich guy and that the rich person got twice as much money to start with. Wow. Collected twice the salary when they pass go. And uh. they got to roll both dice instead of one. So, I mean, they were really moving and grooving. And wow. they actually, in the study, they used hidden cameras to watch the duos play for 15 minutes and they saw that the, the rich players, they moved their pieces more loudly. They were banging them around the board, <laughs> yep. you know, got really enthusiastic. Like, you know, when, uh, when you make a touchdown, yeah. uh, they even ate more pretzels from a bowl <laughs> sitting on the table <laughs> than the players who'd been assigned to the poor condition. So the rich players understanding of the situation was completely warped. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't actually earn it, right? It no. was random. <laughs> I mean, okay, heads, you're the rich guy. Tails, you're poor. Yeah. You know? That's about as much thought was put into it. But I thought that that, to me, just showed the impact that money has on the mind. Because the way that I look at everything, at my interest, is how it affects the brain. Yeah. And what they have found, now they're looking at, at you know, studies where they use fMRIs. Yeah. What happens in the brain, you know, when when money is brought into play? And what happens is it light those little neurons, man, they start firing more. It, it lights up. It's like it's part of the it's part tied to the reward circuitry in the brain. Um, that that totally makes sense. I mean, um, that's my belief is that, you know, we're we're unconsciously following our minds GPS without checking to see if we put in the right destination. And there's definitely, you know, even as something simple as winning a lottery ticket and winning five bucks and you go, oh my God, you get so excited and you feel it 
the brain gets activated, your body gets activated. Like it's a real feeling. Um, but it, it's so much in our brain. I, I, I totally believe it's about mindset and, and, and having what's going on in our mind and our body. Well, and I think too, you know, people that engage in risky behavior um, and, and impulsivity, that's your prefrontal cortex. But a lot of that also, that impulsiveness certainly mm-hmm. plays out in how they spend their money. Absolutely. I, there's, you know, one of the things in in this country and probably many others is we're not, we're actually not taught delayed gratification. We're not nurtured to experience that kind of, I can have it later. The social media, everything is telling us, do it now. You deserve it. Take it, take it, take it, spend it, spend it, spend it. It's just a credit card. It's just a debt. You'll, you know, you're going to die anyway. So who cares? Um, and, and it starts really early. If our parents are spending uh, recklessly or impulsively or aren't having conscious conversations with their kids, uh, those same messages get picked up either as a negative or a positive. And then we attach to it because, hey, it's our parents. We love them. We want to we want to be in alignment with them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, our parents model behavior. So if we see our parents really letting greed be a primary primary motivator, then we're then we're impacted by that. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think so many parents just don't um, don't have the awareness that what they're doing does impact the way their kids uh, perceive things, especially around money. Um, You know, one of the stories that I I tell and it was just devastating to me. It was in a February. I was in a in a toy store and some kid like four years old had asked his mommy for a, a a, you know, a toy. And his mom said, you know what? That's it. You're so greedy. I'm calling Santa as soon as we get home and you're not getting anything for Christmas next year. Now this is February. December's a long time away. And this kid was screaming at the top. Please don't tell, please don't tell Santa, please don't. And, and the mom could have just had a conversation with, you know what, honey, it's not in the budget, but instead manipulation, guilt, shame. And now this kid is taking on that. I'm greedy. I'm selfish. And anytime you get that, you're going to be punished. Wow. That, that says a lot, you know? Yeah. And I'd be willing to bet that that person is going to make some irrational financial decisions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's hard in those situations because I didn't step in because I, you know, didn't want to get punched, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's hard because that's in a way abusive. Uh, and, and it's not actually having a, a conscious, intentional conversation with, with her kid. Yeah. Well, and that's the hard part is, you know, slowing down and say, okay, so many of us don't want to say I can't afford it. And there's right. nothing wrong. There's, but what's wrong with saying I can't afford it? Yeah. It's our ego. Um, our ego doesn't want people to judge us for being less than. So a lot of times with our money, we're really just presenting. Look how successful I am. Look at my pictures on social media. I'm amazing. And then we don't want anybody to see any, uh, dents in the armor, any kinks in the armor. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think that ties into, uh, you know, I think some people even think of money as a drug. Yeah. Well, money's a powerful thing. We use it to manipulate. We use it to tell people we love them. We use it to get people to love us. 
Um, we use it to get people to do things for us. So there is there is power in it. Um, and and so for me, it's again, it's about being responsible and intentional and and realizing those those places where we might manipulate. I mean, I've been guilty of that where I've used money to manipulate or say, well, I get to call the shots because I'm paying for it. Um, and then so then I don't have to listen to the other person. And that's quite embarrassing when you get called on that and go, oh, well, that's sort of ugly. <laughs> Well, but, you know, I think it's just, it's inane. I saw some research that showed that counting money, just handling the bills could make things less painful. What yeah. they did is they had some, they, it was conducted uh, over in China and the students came into a, a lab and they were told that they would be participating in a test of finger dexterity. One group was given a pile of Chinese currency to count. The other group was giving blank pieces of paper. Then, after they did it, the, some of the students were asked to put their fingers in bowls of water heated to 122 degrees Fahrenheit and write how uncomfortable it felt. Well, the students who had been counting the money and they had their hands in the hot water, they reported that the water didn't feel so hot to them compared to the people who had counted slips of paper. That I found to be amazing. Wow, you know that 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 is amazing. It doesn't surprise me, um, but it, it's so fascinating how it's uh, you know that piece of paper that was money is actually just a piece of paper too, right? It's just that we all agreed that it has value um, because if you close your eyes, a five dollar bill feels like a twenty dollar bill, which probably feels a U.S. dollar feels just like a Canadian dollar or a Chinese dollar because it's just paper. Um, but we emotionally attach and then give this piece of paper more value. And where, when do you think that starts to happen? When you're old enough to recognize the value that money has? Because that starts by the time you're three. Yeah, I, I really do think it starts when you're three and four. You know, when it starts with, um, you know, getting the birthday money and, and you, you get you get the big $10. Wow, look, you got $10 versus... Uh, you know, somebody else gives you a buck. You're like, oh, I don't think that's as good. Nobody got excited. We, we start really young clocking uh, what's important just by the way other people around us react. Um, and we get on board with it. So most of us have an un unhealthy relationship with money. If, if they recognize that and they want to transform that relationship with money, how do you do that? So what I do, I think... What we all have to do is sort of reverse engineer. Okay, I, I have this unhealthy relationship with money. Where does that come from? And then I need to go back and I need to look at what did I learn in my childhood? What did my parents say or not say? Or my primary caregivers? What did, uh, did I grow up in a church or a temple or a religious uh, community that had a certain belief about money? Did I grow up in a culture that had a certain perception around money? And then start to look at all those places. Do I remember in early childhood? Did I lose the milk money and get shamed? Did I uh, not excel at math and people told me I would never amount to anything? And, and we have to reverse engineer and start looking. What were all the things that took place as we were formulating our being and then uh, took them with us as the absolute truth? We need to reevaluate and update the software. How hard is that? Well, it's definitely not easy and it's definitely uncomfortable, um, but the payoff is amazing. When I start working with people one-on-one -on -one or in groups, 
I start with, are you willing to do the work and are you willing to be uncomfortable? If they say no to either of those questions, I tell them, well, we're sort of done here because it's going to be uncomfortable and you've got to be willing to look at it and, and you've got to do the work. And, and yes, it is. But if you get support and find other people around you that are willing to go through it with you, it's much less painful. And it, it just, when you've got support, it's much easier to navigate through this stuff. This stuff, like this is lifetime learning that we have to unlearn. Well, the good news is anything we learned, we can unlearn. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so it's, you know, I'm a neurotherapist, a psychotherapist. You're a financial, you do financial therapy. It's yeah. all, it's all crosses <laughs> over. It does. It does. You know, um, I, well, I started out obviously just as a CPA, uh, and, or maybe not obviously, but uh, I started out with an accounting practice and a lot of my uh, tax appointments turned into therapy sessions. And, you know, people would break down and cry. People would share stuff. And I went, oh, wow, there's more to this. At the same time, I had just gotten my CPA license and I realized I was self-sabotaging my own financial situation because people around me with lesser titles were doing better than me. So I knew it had nothing to do with getting my CPA, um, that it was more personal. And, and so I really started this personal exploration and then really started getting curious with my clients. And, uh, it really, it really got me into this realm of, wow, there's emotions in every money decision we make. And it's for most people, very unconscious. What do you think about when people get excited? Cause I, I have a good, dear, very dear friend and she just gets excited when she looks in, you know, she, she checks in with her money on a weekly basis which to me, that's unheard of. Um, but she'll go and she'll log into her bank account. She'll look at things. She'll look at everything every single week. And she gets excited about that. What's going on in her brain? Well, see, that's awesome. That's so great that she's reaffirming her excitement about money and not like having shame that she's looking. Because um, so many people are like, oh, there's money in my account. I don't deserve it. Or there's not enough. I'm not producing. Um, no, I think that's awesome. I actually work with people and encourage them to go to their bank accounts every day and go in and talk to their money. Because what I've found is most people have a comfort level. So if I'm comfortable with just not being overdrawn, if I've got 10,000 bucks in the bank, oh, I got to spend it. I got to get back to my comfort level. And I see this happen when people inherit money. Um, all of a sudden, there's a whole lot more money in the bank accounts, and they're very uncomfortable. So they've got to get it out, out of their view as soon as possible so they can get back to comfort. And so if we can learn to go in and look at our money and see it grow and learn to tolerate that, then we can get to celebrating it. And to me, I just it makes me giggle to hear her talk about <laughs> it. she And it's not that she she's not a greedy woman. It's not yeah. that she's plotting and thinking about everything she's going to buy. It's not that way at all. Yeah. It's just, you know, she just, I have my weekly check-in with my money. And I'm like, does that mean I need to set a money date or something? I mean. No, it's, well, you know, that's awesome because for me, that's about intentionality. It's just being conscious. Being conscious about your money doesn't mean you're greedy. Being smart about, about your money doesn't mean you're obsessed with money. It just means you're aware that money plays a role in almost everything we do, whether we buy our lunch or bring our lunch to work, whether we buy the fancy label or we don't. Um, like there's so many choices and often we're trying to feed our ego. And what I'm hearing her doing is having a healthy 
relationship of just checking in, seeing where she's at, not making it good or bad, but just feeling the excitement of being in relationship with her money. Well, I think that that is, I admire her. I admire her spirit about it. And it's not that, you know, at first I thought, well, is she comparing this with the Joneses? Right. But it doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh Uh-uh. No, it doesn't. It's really, you know, when we start comparing, that's the worst thing we can do because everybody's going to always look better in a certain snapshot without knowing the whole context. Um, To me, her going in and look at the money, I do that. I like to go in and just make sure it's still there, make sure the bank didn't make an error. Um, You know, I once had a bank wire in $100,000 in my account for 10 minutes that wasn't mine. I felt very excited um, and then sad. But uh, being able to go in and just look at the money without a big emotional attachment of negativity to me is just reaffirming that like it's part of life. It's not all of life, but money is going to be a part of everything we do. It's, it's, it's an exchange and that's what we use is money. Well, and I think that it's like everything else. Do we focus on the positive or do we focus on the negative? And if we're focused on the negative, well, how is that enriching our life? What is that doing for us? Um, yeah, I think when we focus on the negative, we just keep reinforcing the negative. Um, oh, I never, I never get ahead. I never have any money in my bank account. And then we keep going back to that. I want to be right. I get to be right. Look, I never have any money. I always overspend instead of stopping, taking a breath and saying, what can I do a little bit differently? Well, we've just got a couple of minutes left before the break. If there are just one or two things that you would encourage people to stop and think about doing things differently, what would those be? The first, the two things that I would do immediately, I would, one, start looking at all of my expenses that I spend every month, the cable bill, my cell phone bill, and look to see if there's anything on there that needs to be uh you know, terminated, get rid of, stop subscribing. So I would really look at my spending and seeing where are there places that I just had put it on automatic and forgot to go back and adjust. Um, Then the other thing that I would do is a lot of people say, well, I can't save. So just go in and start saving five bucks. Set up an online account that has nothing to do with any of your other bank accounts, except other than the ability to take it out of your checking account. And just start with five bucks and sending it over to another bank account. Don't look at it maybe once a week. And as you see it growing, often people will then start to switch it to $5 to $10 to $20 to 50 bucks. But to get that first baby step in, just start saving five bucks, online bank account, do it now and stop waiting for a windfall of cash to, to get your jump start. Well, that's really good advice because what I have found working with my clients is you've got to set goals that are doable. You yes. know, if you've never exercised don't tell me you're going to go at work out for three hours a day. Number one, you're not going to do it. And number right. two, you're going to feel like a loser because you didn't do it. Absolutely. And that's, that is not what it's about. So there's a lot more, you know, that, that we can touch on. I'd like to really talk about the emotions and how that impacts our financial decision making when we come back from break. And I know everybody is struggling with that. We know taxes are coming up. What, What are we going to do with our money? We'll be back after these messages. Have you heard? 
The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. It's words you never heard. Whenever we hear a recording of our own voice, it always sounds different than we think. This is because the bones in our skull create a resonance from within that makes our voice sound deeper to us. But our recorded voice is how others hear us. I'm sure I'm not the first person who has uttered the words, I really don't sound like that. Do I? Margaret Thatcher famously underwent vocal training to lower her voice and make her sound more statesmanlike. Recently, British Airways polled Americans and Britons to see who they believed had the sexiest voices. Morgan Freeman was voted number one. If a judge loves the sound of his own voice, expect a long sentence. What's a word for a person who loves to hear the sound of their own voice? A philodox. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back and we want to, I want to learn more, Bob. I want to learn how the emotions impact financial decision-making because I want to make better financial decisions in 2021. Help me out. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things about uh, making decisions, uh, emotions come into play when we're spending our money, emotions are coming into play. And so what we want to start to look at is, am I feeding my ego? A lot of times I'm buying that extra drink or I'm, you know, dinner's on me or all of these different things where I want people to think I'm successful. Money's no object. Um, and, and so we're going in with, you know, am I worthy? Am I enough? Will people think I'm successful? So we've got all these stories about ourselves and then our money is a way of either reaffirming that, um, or denying it. Um, and, and so if we can start to realize that Everything we do in our decision-making involves money. Do I bring my lunch? Do I, uh, do I go out to lunch? Do I uh, get the extra drink? Do I splurge on the fancier car? Do I buy designer label? Uh, do I need that extra pair of shoes? And, and in our mind, our ego will say, of course you do. You, sh- you deserve everything. Uh, take care of yourself now. You deserve to be pampered. And, and so if we're not aware of, of how emotions come into play, uh, then we're going to keep doing things that don't necessarily serve our long-term um, life goals, or they're in a, they're not in alignment with what we say we want to have. Um, I, you know, one of my fir- my editor when I first wrote the book, the editor came to me and she said, you know, I, I like that you're writing this book on money and emotions, but I don't like this book is not for everybody. I don't even 
there's no emotional decision making in my money spending. And I said, okay, well, when you go out to lunch with your dad, who pays? She goes, well, he does. I'm his little princess. I said, okay, well, who pays when you go out with your mom? She said, um, well, I do because my dad left my mom and I feel really sorry for her. And I said, okay, who pays for lunch when you go out with your sister? She goes, oh, well, we go, go Dutch. We're equal. Oh, I get it. Right. So even in those three scenarios of lunch with different ma family members, she was making different choices based on emotional responses. That is a great example, you know, because when I think of decision making, I think, well, that's all done in the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> but and the and the left side of the brain is all logic and the right side is emotion. But yeah. the truth is, I mean, this is a true fact. Two thirds of the cells in the right hemisphere of your brain are constantly scanning for danger. They're yeah. looking for those threats. And when you get into that mode, then you're using your amygdala to make the, to make decisions. And that's your emotional center. And we all know about those decisions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because when I work with a lot of people that want to, that say they want to be successful, start their own business. Um, and that little voice in the back of their head that's saying you're not capable or you don't have enough money. Um, it's the more we can start to be aware that, yeah, if I go for success, if I, am known to have a lot of money, people may not like me. People might judge me. People may not root for my success. And I have to be prepared for that. Like do it anyway. But a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to step up because I'm going to be attacked. So I don't want to be successful. I don't want to move into senior management. I don't want to start my own business because people will talk. Well, and then too, you know, people will want something from me. Yes. And that is where I've seen people really struggle is people are just going to want something for me, whether I want to give it or not. And, it, you know, in my world, that's called learning how to set boundaries. Exactly. <laughs> and people don't like to set boundaries. <laughs> no, they don't. And why do you think that is? Well, again, it goes to the ego. People are going to judge me. If I set a boundary, people are going to say, who are you to advocate for yourself? How dare you not take care of me first? Um, it brings up a lot, you know, our parents, at least my parents, were not good at setting boundaries and they didn't teach me to set boundaries. So when I set a boundary, it would feel like a confrontation. It made me feel like, oh, you're being selfish. You know, you said you were going to help somebody and now you're drawing the line because it doesn't serve you. Um, those, it made it feel very negative when I set boundaries because I was then a bad person for not being generous and kind. And I think that's true for a lot of people that, oh, how will I be viewed if I set a boundary that actually advocates for myself? Well, and I think that setting boundaries, it's challenge on many different levels, but so many people don't think that they deserve to set yeah. boundaries. And yeah. yes, you do, you know, and I don't know so much with money because I haven't done financial therapy, but my opinion of money, money is something that can always be made. I mean, you can't always have good health. You right. can't buy it. You can't create it. So how important is money? Yeah, I mean, money is definitely a part of our lives. Um, and I enjoy making money. But it is not the driving factor in the way I deal with my clients. Um, it's not the way I deal with things in my life. If it's about my integrity or making more money, I'd rather keep my integrity. Um, but I, I do think for a lot of people... Um, there is this, I don't deserve it. Um, 
and I better just stay low and out of sight so that I don't have to be challenged. Um, and, and unfortunately with boundaries, you have to always keep setting them. You, I, like, I wish I could say I've set all the boundaries and I've laid it out and somebody read the book on my boundaries and I never have to bring it up again. But I constantly have to say, hey guys, that's not working for me. <laughs> um, here's my boundary. It's, 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 it's a lifetime endeavor. Well, you, you make a very good point because it is. It's not something you lay down. Don't walk. Don't you dare step across that line because yeah. the, the line moves. It you know, so it's not that I'm making a decision to step across the line, but the line moved and now yeah. I'm across it. So it's it's much harder to do. So, you know, do you know people that play the lottery that buy the lotto tickets? You know, I do. And it's interesting because the lotto was just about to go up to, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars a couple of weeks ago. I had a couple of clients call me and say, hey, listen, I'm thinking I know the money's big and even if it's not this time, probably in the next couple, I, I really have a good feeling. Should I go ahead and set up an LLC to protect, you know, my anonymity, uh, when I win the money? And, and I'm like, well, let's do this. You've got six or nine months to collect the money. So why don't you win the money first and then come <laughs> back to me and then we'll, let, we'll set up the LLC. Like, you know, I don't, I don't shame them, but it's like for them, it's really like, I'm actually going to win. It's, it's coming. And they're certain, you know, and, and unfortunately, no one is going to make you rich. No, um, no one's going to maybe that lotto ticket will end up in your hands, but you got to you got to play to win and That's you got to right. play a lot. You do. And, you know, interestingly enough, I uh, had a family member that won a million dollars three times <gasps> and they said in hindsight, it was the worst thing that happened all three times. Um, because what happened was in their mind, they won a million dollars, even though probably 40% of it went to tax, right? So there's 400 gone right there. And then everybody came out of the woodwork saying, Hey, I have this project I'm working on. Hey, you want to invest in my business? And then because it sounded like a lot of money, they actually overspent not factoring things in. And they ended up going into bankruptcy a couple of times. And they just said, you know, it was like, if I had my choice again, probably wouldn't have taken the money. <laughs> wow. That's and but you, but I've heard that story before. Yeah, and it, you, you know you're not really prepared. You're not. To, what are you going to do with the money? I mean, you, you need to sit down and set some goals. I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, for me, it goes back to that comfort level about how much are my, am I comfortable having in my bank account or how big is my house, um, those kinds of things. But you do, you really have to sit down and say, what do I want to do with this money? How do I be smart about it? Um, do I need to keep it quiet from some of my friends who will now just come out and start asking me to be a banker? Um, do I like, how am I going to deal with this? And again, the one thing that a lot of us don't do is ask for support. Um, the best thing you can do when you're struggling with money issues, find a professional, find a friend, talk to a family member that you trust, um, that can help you so that you don't have to feel like you're doing it alone. What well, it is, it's overwhelming to yeah. try to do anything by yourself. Absolutely. And I think it's just like if, if you're having problems consistently, you're not happy, seek help, whether it's a counselor, a therapist, a pastor, somebody, but somebody can help just by listening and letting you talk through it. Because a lot of times I find that in the subconscious part of our mind, 
we've already made some decisions. Right. I mean, this is a true fact. Every second, that brain is capable of taking in 11 million bits of data. The most that you can handle on a conscious level, research says between 40 and 126. Personally, I go with the 40. But (laughs) either way, we don't have to do the math. Where does everything go? It goes right into your subconscious. Yeah. And we just, we don't acknowledge it, but it's there. It's totally there. And I think, you know, one thing I would really recommend to people out there listening is when you're looking at your finances and there might be some self-sabotage or overspending, rather than being really critical, because we all love to be our worst judge, um, is to just say to yourself, wow, isn't that interesting? I'm really curious how I love to overspend. I'm really curious about how I always come up short and, and, and actually just make it a, a personal excavation of curiosity rather than a self-condemnation of, you know, you are the worst person ever. So no judgment. Don't judge yourself. Mm -mm. Just observe. And I, our observation skills are some of the most powerful skills that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And, but we have to stop and get a little bit grounded, take a breath and, 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 really be open to what's there, the pleasant and the unpleasant, and and just welcome all of it because it's unconsciously there anyway. So we might as well welcome it to the surface and then see if there's a different way to do it. Well, you know, I spent a little bit of time on your website. And one of the things that I really liked is that you have an online course that people can take on their own. Yeah. Because for some people, you know, they can't just jump in and work with somebody. They have to kind of figure it out on their own first. Tell me a little bit more about that course. Yeah. So I created that course because, well, with the pandemic and everything else, it's, it's hard to, I do a lot of workshops as well, but again, people don't always like to be in a group and expose themselves or they can't afford one-on-one financial therapy. And so the course was a way to walk people through um, the reverse engineering, looking at childhood, looking at beliefs, and then taking people to how do you set goals and how do you actually create a blueprint to make the goal actually happen? You know, there's, uh, I don't know if I have the quote exactly right, but uh, a goal is a dream with a timetable. And so a lot of times we're dreaming, but we don't ever actually bring it to realization. And so in the, in the online course, we show people how to set goals, create budgets, and then really check in with what do I want my life to be? What do I want my life experience to be? What do I want my legacy to be? And, and we really just take you through all the negative and through the positive to really affirm and help people step out into their full selves. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're connecting the concept of themselves and money together. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I'm a CPA. Uh, finance is my world, but I also have a uh, background in um, somatic therapy. Um, and for me, bringing in the body and the mind and, and bringing all that together instead of just very left brain approach, I'm sorry, very, yeah, I, I just want to make sure that we're looking at the whole picture. Absolutely. And, you know, let's, we talked a little bit earlier about people that have a lot of money that are wealthy and how they have a little bit of an entitlement attitude. Yeah. Um, 
And I've, I've seen some very interesting research that suggested that people who make less are more generous. Yeah. I mean, it was a study that where they brought in rich and poor members of the community into a lab and they gave each participant $10 and they were told they could keep the money for themselves or they could share a portion with a stranger. The people that made under $25,000 and even sometimes $15,000 gave 44% more wow. than the, to the stranger than those making one hundred dollars to $200,000. That's awesome. And, you know, as I think about that, as you say that, there's there's two parts to it, right? I do think they're, that they are more generous. And uh, I, I've seen that. Uh, often they've done studies too. Minorities tend to be more helpful and, and generous in, in helping other people because they've been disadvantaged and they understand the experience. Um, at the same time, then I would also be curious as to are the people giving the money away because they feel uncomfortable receiving it or is it coming from generosity? So, there may be a layer there and it may just be full generosity. But again, I just like to invite in everything to see what's involved in that decision-making or what's in the mindset. Well, and, and I do think that you have a, you make a, a very valid point there um, because charitable giving is something that some people don't even know what that is. Right. Why, why would I do that? I mean, and I know there's there's a lot of opinions on homeless people, and, and I I have my homeless guy, and he has a dog, and I you know I feel like he's part of my community. Yeah. I contribute to him, and, and people say, well, you know that they're just going to take that money and and buy drugs or and you know what? I'm not judging. Right. I'm not judging what I what they do with that money. Um, I, it's just I feel he's a part of my community that I want to at least show some, a little bit of charity towards. Yeah. I, I, I so agree with you on that. You know, I was really aware when I was in Africa, how grateful people are and how generous they are and, uh, how happy they are. And one of the things that I, I, that I, I've talked about because going over there and seeing this and having been to many countries and getting to experience other cultures, um, we're wealthy enough that we get to isolate, we get to build walls, we get to push out the undesirables. And in other countries, you have to deal with the, you know, the, the town drunk or the homeless person or the people that you don't like because they, ha they rely on community. And, and we have this first world ability to be able to disconnect and push it all away from us. And, and the, by you seeing him as part of the community, you're actually seeing a part of the whole world because maybe they didn't get the breaks. Maybe they will go out and buy drugs, but maybe they didn't get the opportunities. Maybe the system failed them. And, and we want to be uh, generous about that instead of like, well, I did well. So why couldn't you? Well, and to me, it's all about mental health. Yeah. It's not about that. They don't want to go out and get a job for, for some reason. Yeah. Mentally, they're not strong enough. Yeah. And I mean, my spirit for 2021 is to be the pioneer of mental health and the importance of it, because everything you do, everything you don't do, how well you do it, it all depends on how that brain's working. And I talk about that in my book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. And I wrote that book for one reason. So people would see it is OK 
to not be okay. Yeah. I, you know, I so agree with that. And it's, it's still, there's a stigma there. I think that it's slowly shifting, but if we don't take care of our folks that aren't okay, like it impacts all of us. It does. And I'm not really worried about physical health of people in America. I'm worried about their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've seen in the last few months that things have been so uh, up and down, the economy, uh, there's just been instability. And I think people have been holding that emotionally and really not aware of it. Um, And so I think there's probably a lot of people out there uh, that don't really have an awareness that they have anxiety or that they have depression uh, because they're just trying to survive. Well, I know you're right because I've talked to a lot of them. Um, Part of my process is I do a consultation, a 30 minute consultation, no charge with everybody before I work with them. And in all honesty, that's for me because I want to be sure that if I tell you I can help you, I want to be sure that I can. Yeah. Because there's sometimes that if, if we all have to show up, that's the one thing that we have to do is we have to show up. And if you're not ready, then wait, you know, wait until you get a little bit in a, in a more stable position. Um, I think that's so awesome that you do that. Um, I meet with my clients for a free consultation and they're like, why? And I said, well, cause I want to find out if you like me and if I like you, because if I don't like you, I may not help you when you call. If you don't like me, you're not going to reach out to me when you need help. And, and they're like, oh, okay. That makes sense because I really actually want to serve my clients and I want to be in a relationship with them that's sustainable. So tell me about your book that you wrote. Yeah. So, uh, the money nerve, Navigating the Emotions of Money, that book was written. um, I actually was at the comedy store one day and one of my friends came in who was a comic and she was crying uh, because her family, everybody was a doctor or some kind of, you know, professional. And uh, she had chosen comedy. And so she had just come from her family who had just shamed her. And, uh, you know, and I said, hey, you know, you're not the only one out there. Half the people you see that you think have an amazing life, um, if you saw their financial records, if you saw their debt, you would not be thinking what you're thinking. And she was like, really? And I just realized how many people feel alone uh, in in dealing with finances. And I I realized that there was just so much shame. And so I wrote the book um, based on my own personal journey and talking with so many clients and people uh, to just really help remove the stigma of shame and to get these conversations about money going to normalize the conversation because we're all making financial decisions all the time and we don't need to beat ourselves up and we don't need to feel alone. And so I, I wrote the book and put in all these action calls to actions as a way to help people start to feel good about themselves and their financial situation. Can you share one of those call to actions with us? Um, yeah. So one of the calls to actions that I love people to do is um, write down the last three things you heard yourself say about money. Um, and what people will often find is they're saying, oh, I'm broke, even though they've got two cars, a beach house and all this <laughs> stuff. Right. They're they're cash flow negative at the moment or cash flow is tight, but they're not broke. So listen to those words. You know, I need I need to have the newest smartphone. Um, I have to have a Lamborghini. Um, so to really listen to these, these things that we say out loud, um, and then start to just notice, 
um, your emotional response when you, you know, go to that store, you go to Target, you said you're going to go in for and spend 50 bucks and now it's 250 bucks. Do you just go, oh yeah, no problem. And have a inside heart attack as you're charging, you know, significantly more than you planned on it. Do you feel good about it? Like, what is your reaction when you're in any kind of money situation? And just notice it and write it down. So you kind of keep your journal on how your interactions with money's going. Absolutely. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to solve the problem, but at least you can manage the problem. Like, uh, you know, I tell people this. I When I talk to the IRS, I get really frustrated because I've been doing this a long time. And sometimes I get people and they're like, well, that's not the law. And I'm like, yes, it is. And I get angry. I don't get very good results when I'm angry. So I found it was much easier to have one of the staff people call and work everything out. And they get a much better resolution because they're not emotionally attached to the outcome like I am. And And so it doesn't mean that I've solved that. I'm certainly working on it. But I know that's something that happens for me. And if you know that you can't say no when somebody tries to sell you something, then find a way out. You know, oh, I have to talk to my spouse. They'll kill me if I don't, if I sign this contract. Or I need to wait 24 hours before I sign any contracts. Um, Find the ways that serve you so that when you're in a situation that you're uncomfortable with, you have a way to manage it. Absolutely. You know, we've talked a lot today about the relationship that we have with our money personally. But do you think there's a relationship between love and money? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, when we're little, um, we're already getting money as a way of proving our love or receiving love. Uh, and, And a lot of it's unconscious. You know, my grandparents on one side of the family said, we'll put more money in your bank accounts if you sort of like us more. We were like, okay, cool. <laughs> we like you more, right? <laughs> uh, and, and in a way, looking back, it's sad, but that was how they knew to get love, was to throw money towards something. And we do use money as a manipulation for love. It's uh, relationships, marriages. You know, in some cultures, if the woman has to be worth a certain amount, you know, there's a dowry. Um, it's very tied um, money and love, money and sexuality, money and self-worth. Uh, it, it's so important to look at all that and, and really get to the root of it so we can have healthy relationships and make great choices that serve us. And so many people think money is just, if I had enough money, if I mm. had more money, if I spent my money better, yeah. you know, there's always the big what if game that we can play, whether it's money or anything. But I think, you know, you've offered some really good practical advice today for people just and what I've heard, what I've heard is, you know what, tell you, identify what's your money story and where did it come from in your childhood? And is it positive? Is it negative? And if it's, if you, it's negative, let's try to develop a more positive relationship. And you gave some great ideas on how to do that. And, you know, we've got one minute left. If you had One closing, what would that be? You know, I think my closing thought to people is to be kind to yourself. Like, just be gentle with yourself. You're doing the best that you can. Um, And just keep being kind. Know that you're not alone. And ask for support. There are so many people out there that will willingly lend support and help you along this journey. And you don't have to do it alone. 
No, you don't. And if people want to find you online, if they if they just Google the money nerve, that will pull you up. If they Google Bob Wheeler, will that pull you up? It will. Both of those will pull it up. And just for people to, it's sometimes they think I'm saying money nerd, but it's it's nerve. <laughs> money nerve. Thank you, Bob, so much for today. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,